Um, I'm going to do it this way. You don't care if it hangs, do you? Um, I'm very excited about our partnership. I'm very thankful for a church like Countryside that loves on Lincoln so well. And today, um, the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi are our words to you. I, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first moment until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. We remember you. We pray for you. We thank God for you. And there's a reason why. It's because of your partnership in the gospel. That's what it's all about. That is the good work that God will finish in you. Our Lord and Savior will return, not as a baby in a manger, but as a rider on a white horse whose name is Faithful and True with a sword out of his mouth, dispensing justice to the nations. And when that day comes, we will stand together as partners in the greatest mission the world has ever seen. This morning, what I want to do is I want to give you the message of the gospel. And I want to do it in three sentences. And these are sentences that I actually learned my freshman year at Lincoln Christian University. And I want to share those with you so that you can hear for yourself what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you today. And I pray, Father, that my words are yours. I pray for your Holy Spirit to do the work of discernment of convicting, of pointing toward righteousness, of reminding us that we are here together in your name. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. The summer of 1984 was the very best summer of my life. That's the summer I got my driver's license. I remember wanting my driver's license, and it's amazing to me because my daughter's generation, many of her friends didn't want their driver's license when they were 16, which I thought was ridiculous because I wanted my license. I wanted to be able to drive. I would go anywhere for my mother. Mother say, go to the store, and I'd say, yes, mom, I was on it. I wanted to drive anywhere. That summer was also great summer because my Colt League baseball team, 15 and 16-year-olds, were two wins away from doing something no team in the tiny town of West Frankfort, Illinois, had ever done. We were getting ready to go to state, and two wins separated us from state. I'd had my driver's license for about three weeks. And you have to know something a little bit different about summer ball. Summer ball is not high school ball. Summer ball, we would gather together at a predetermined location, which in our case was our local National Guard armory building. And we would all gather together and we would all pile into cars and we would caravan to whatever game we were going to. I'd had my license for about three weeks. And I remember the last words my father told me as I left the house that day. Son, don't take the car out of town. Now, that's important because what happens next in the story? We gathered all together, and coach comes up behind me and says, Thomas, can you drive? Have you ever had a moment in your life when you knew the next thing that came out of your mouth was going to shape the rest of your life forever and ever? Sure, coach, I'll drive. 
Now, you need to understand something. I wasn't one of those guys that was very dangerous driver, okay? The distance, we were going to a town called Chester, Illinois, and Chester was about 60 miles away. Now, I had never driven 60 miles. Maybe altogether I'd driven 60 miles, but I'd never driven 60 miles at once. And so I was very nervous when we got behind the wheel. There were four of us in the car, buddy shotgun and two in the back seat. And as I was driving, I remember my hands were at 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And don't touch that radio. Don't turn it on. I need to concentrate. I was scared. I was driving very, very cautiously, very, very carefully. But the closer we got to Chester, the more I relaxed. After all, my car was a 1981 Mercury Zephyr. Now, if you don't know what a 1981 Mercury Zephyr is, think a Twinkie box with wheels on it. It was an old driver's ed car that still had the floor carpet cut open where the driver's ed teacher had his brake so he could keep from killing somebody if the student lost control. We got into Chester, and as you go into Chester, there is this long hill that goes up real slowly on Route 3. No lie, at the bottom of the hill, I was doing 55 miles an hour. At the top of the hill, with my foot to the floor, I was doing 25. This car was not what you would call a speed demon of a vehicle. And I remember getting into Chester thinking, I made it. Boy, my dad's going to be so surprised to find out I could do this. I made it all the way to the park. Half a block away from the park, I turned my left turn signal on, pulled up to get ready to turn left into the park, did not see the 17-year-old coming up behind me who was driving his father's Cadillac and decided in that moment would be a good time to light a cigar. He ducked his head, did not see me, bam, knocked me across the street, tore up the back end of the car. The car was still drivable, although to be honest with you, that did not do me a whole lot of good. I remember the cop shows up, and if I'm lying, I'm dying. The cop shows up, and this kid looks at him and says, Hi, Uncle Jerry. I thought, great. I'm going to prison in Popeye's hometown. Yay. <laughs> but no, justice prevailed. He gave his nephew a ticket. We exchanged insurance information, but again, that didn't make me feel very good. I remember we went to the game, and, and to be honest with you, I can't tell you much about the game. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this. Partway through the game... Um, the umpire called a balk on our pitcher, and my coach went out to argue the balk call with the umpire, and the umpire called a not, pulled a knife on him. I don't remember that. That's how shook up I was. I didn't remember a umpire pulling a knife on our coach because I literally spent the entire evening on the bench in the fetal position. Because I remember thinking, when I get home, my father is going to kill me. We won the game. We were moving on to the championship game. We drove home. It was a long drive late that night. We fi- they stopped at a restaurant in Carbondale and ate. And I was like, I just want to get home. <laughs> we finally got home at 2 o'clock in the morning. And if West Frankfort, Illinois is anything like you guys, you would understand this. They roll the sidewalks up at dark. And I had about a 10-minute drive through town on the other side of town out in the country is where I lived. And I remember driving through that town, and it was so dark and so lonely and so scary. And I remember praying, God, if there's God in heaven, please let my dad be asleep when I get home. 
And I remember pulling into the driveway and seeing the silhouette of a man standing by the back porch door. I went into the house and was talking to him rapidly, telling him all the wonderful things about, yeah, we won the ball game, and yeah, I was in an accident, boy, how, kid, how stupid could that kid be trying to light a cigar, blah, 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 blah. We've got insurance, he's got insurance, everything's paid for. Good night. <laughs> and my dad, who had never been at a loss for words ever, was silent. And the more he was silent, the more I kept talking. And the more I kept talking, the more he was silent. And finally, in my frustration, I remember I could take you to the spot where I sat. At the kitchen table, I looked him in the eye and said, say something. He said, why? That's all he said. I knew what he meant. Why did you take the car out of town when I specifically told you not to? Why did you disobey me? You have to admit, why is a powerful question. We're going to be in 2 Samuel today. If you want to turn there, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12. 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12. It's an incident in the life of King David, and to be honest with you, I've got a few why questions myself. 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 1. 2 Samuel, excuse me, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David, why? Why did you stay in Jerusalem when the other kings were going to war? Verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. David, why didn't you look away? Verse 3. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David, did you not hear the man? She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why are you asking about someone else's wife? Verse 4. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. David, why? If you're taking notes, I'm going to give you three statements today. And in my, in my estimation, these three statements summarize the gospel message of Scripture in the best way possible. And the first sentence is this. Sin is always greater than our power to explain it. Sin is always greater than our power to explain it. David had lots of wives, lots of women at his disposal. He could have chosen from any number of maidens and brought them into his palace. David, why would you choose the one thing you couldn't have? I don't know. Why would Adam and Eve choose to eat the fruit from the one tree in the garden that was forbidden? Adam and Eve, you had access to all of the blessings of God's glorious garden. Why would you choose the one thing you can't have? I don't know. Maybe I should ask me. Maybe I should ask you, why did you do it? 
Why did you surrender to that temptation? Why did you make that choice? When we are confronted with the sin, we are confronted with the why, our response is remarkably similar. I don't know. You have all of the blessings of God. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesus that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Peter told the outcasts that we have everything that we need to live a godly life. Do you hear what he said? Paul said we have every spiritual blessing. Peter said we have everything that we need to live a godly life. So why don't we? I woke up the next morning to find my uniform and my father missing. He had taken them to my coach and informed him that I would no longer be on the team. I was livid. How dare you? We were one game away from doing something that no one in West Frankfurt had ever done. We were going to ride on a charter bus and stay in a hotel and play in our very first tournament. I remember my coach and some of the players coming to my house to try to convince my father to let me play, which was absolutely hilarious for two reasons. Number one, my father fought in World War II against the Japanese in Burma. He grew up in the Great Depression and was a coal miner his entire life. You weren't going to change his mind about much of anything. And the other thing that absolutely amazed me is about my coach and all my players coming to say, could you let Tracy come join us on the team? Guys, I never played. I mean, ever. My hometown newspaper had a summer edition. Every summer they would print a picture and a list of all of the baseball and softball teams in town. All of the leagues. And that year, in the summer edition, to eight thousand subscribers of the daily american newspaper there was a front page article that was continued to the back page article with a four by six picture of me explaining to the entire community how i never played but i had a really good attitude about it (laughs) i remember what my father said i've got to teach my son a lesson And I'll be honest with you, to this day, whenever I watch that scene in the cartoon Lion King where where Simba gets in trouble with his father and his father says, I've got to teach my son a lesson, I still cringe to this day watching that scene. So I sat there grounded. I could not leave the house. My father, who was retired from the mines by that point and told us he had no desire to ever go anywhere ever again, was with me every moment of the day. Our baseball team went back to the tournament, needing one win to go to state, and they got it. And they celebrated without me, and they made plans for state without me. The first lesson I learned is that sin is always greater than our power to explain it. Here's the second lesson I learned. The consequences of sin are always greater than the sin itself. The consequences of sin are always greater than the sin itself. You don't believe me? Look at verse 5, 2 Samuel 11. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So here's a question. 
what's your sin worth to you? So he messed up, but it's over and done with, right? That's what we want people to say when we sin, don't we? Okay, so I made a mistake or I messed up or whatever we want to say when we don't want to use the word sin. Why can't you all just let it go? Here's why. Here's why you can't let sin go because sin doesn't let go. Sin keeps digging deeper and deeper and taking more and more territory. Sin doesn't quit with you. It keeps on growing until it destroys everything around you. Don't believe me? Think I'm somehow overstating the case? Ask David and Bathsheba. When he heard that Bathsheba was pregnant, he sent for her husband to come home from the war. Not because he wanted to confess to Uriah, but because he wanted Uriah to go home to his wife and do what husbands and wives do when they haven't seen each other for a while. And then everyone would just think that the baby was somehow Uriah's and everything would be good. There's only one problem. Uriah won't go home. He won't sleep with his wife while his men are still out there fighting battle. Uriah the Hittite. Guys, don't miss this. You understand who this guy is, right? Uriah the Hittite. Guys, the Hittites were mercenaries. They were soldiers hired by Israel to augment their numbers when they went to battle. They were an army for hire. He wasn't even a believer in God. And this Hittite, this mercenary, somehow set a better example than the man who is supposedly a man after God's own heart. So what does David do? Will he confess his sin? Nope. Gets Uriah drunk. Now Uriah will go home. He'll spend some time with his wife. The only problem is he didn't. He went and laid in the front step of his own house. He didn't even go into his own house. So what does David do? Look down at verse 15, chapter 11. He summoned Uriah and gave him a note to take back to his commander. Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So Uriah dutifully takes the message from the king back to the front lines, announcing to the commander that he is to be killed at the earliest opportunity. So what does Joab the commander do? He obeys his king's orders. Look at verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Let me ask you something. What did those men do wrong? What was their crime? You know who I'm talking about, right? Do you hear what he says? He says in verse 16, he says, When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. What, did they not get the memo? Did they miss the meeting where it was put into place, the plan was put into place to kill Uriah at the earliest possible opportunity? What was their offense? You see, this is what sin does. Your sin is never just about you. I watch people who call themselves Christian cover over their sin. And when that fails, they fall back on the old, my life is none of your business line. You are a child of the king. 
You are a precious member of the community of faith. What you do with your life is everybody's business. Because we stand together as a community. You don't believe me? Make a list. I did. You can't read a story like David and Bathsheba and wonder for yourself as a man myself who's been married for 30 years. If I ever decided that I was going to cheat on my wife, if I was ever going to commit adultery, which I'm never going to do because I'm telling you right now, I ain't stupid. I know a really good thing when I see it. But if I did, I made a list. My God, I have hurt my witness. My wife, I violated her trust. Every time she looks at me, will she wonder if I see her or another woman? My daughters, they look up to me and now they will wonder what everyone thinks of them. My son-in-law, who's a youth minister at a church in Indiana, I'm an example of ministry for him, only now I will be an example to avoid. My grandson, my grandpa will always be that guy who used to. My family, all my attempts to be a good influence are useless. My church, I have just set my church back 10 years. Tell me, is it worth it? What's your sin worth to you? The book of 2 Samuel that we find our story in reads like two different books. In the first half of 2 Samuel, David could do no wrong. He has victory over his enemies and the enemies of Israel. He brings the Ark of the Covenant home. He shows mercy to a grandson of Saul who is crippled. Everything is golden. And then in the second half of 2 Samuel, nothing goes right. Rebellion upon rebellion, sin compounded upon sin. And what was the difference between the first half of 2 Samuel and the second half of 2 Samuel? I will tell you, 2 Samuel chapter 11 is right in the middle. David and Bathsheba. Your actions have ramifications that affect so many people. You are the rock in the pond. Can you live with the last ripple? David thought he could. Uriah was dead. David had brought the poor grieving widow into his palace to take care of her. And when her pregnancy began to show, everyone just assumed that David was the father and he's given her a child and things will be wonderful. David is the hero. There's only one problem. Look down at verse 27. Verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased who? Who? The Lord. God sent a prophet named Nathan to David and brought him a problem. You see, there was a man who had a baby lamb. He was poor and didn't have much, so this lamb was precious to him. He He treated this lamb as if it were his own child. He he fed it from the table. The lamb slept in his bed. He couldn't love that little lamb any more than he did. But this man had a neighbor, a rich man, who had thousands of lambs. And one day this rich man had a guest in his home, and the guest was hungry. And I'm guessing McDonald's was closed because he couldn't go there. He had to feed him something. 
So what does he do? Instead of taking one of his thousands of lambs that he has, he goes across the street and rips that little ewe lamb out of that poor man's hands and slaughters it and butchers it for that man to have something to eat. And Nathan says, David, what should we do with that man? And 2 Samuel 12 Verses 5 and 6 say this, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. (laughs) Now you need to understand something. Old Testament law, that wasn't the punishment. It wasn't death. That wasn't the punishment for what what this rich man did. But I want you to catch David is furious. We get so upset over the sins of other people. We get such righteous indignation when other people do stupid things. Man, we get on Facebook. Somebody says, well, so-and-so did so-and-so again. And we get on Facebook and we comment. They did it again? I care about She shot got rid of him. It's so funny. I... I I watched I watched the Facebook um the Cubs Cubs game yesterday which wasn't good but I watched the Facebook of the Cubs game and people are commenting in Facebook live during the game and it's like a batter would strike out and they're like they should be sent down to the minors they should be given their out their outright release their children should be burned at the stake <laughs> I'm all reading these comments like what look what David says verse six. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. We get so upset at the perceived sins of others. But look at verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You know, in the Hebrew language, in the original language of this text, there are no linking verbs. There is no verb in this sentence. Literally, Nathan looks at David and says, you the man. You're the one who did it. This is you who we're talking about. The Lord told David, I've given you so much and would have given you more if you'd asked. Why did you do this? Why did you do this? And David is confronted with this question. Four times over. His son Amnon would rape his half-sister Tamar. And in revenge, Absalom, another son, would kill Amnon. For the sake of our discussion, let's call that one. Absalom later leads a rebellion against King David and is killed in the battle. That's two. Another son, Adonijah, would rebel against the throne and he himself killed. That's three. And look down at verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Imagine what kind of church we would be if people in this place were willing to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Have you noticed? No one sins anymore. What do you talk about? It's always someone else. It's always something else. It's always a different place to put the blame. Look what David said. I've sinned against the Lord. I want you to catch what happens next. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. 
David recognized his sin. And that's good. But what we must also recognize is that there are consequences of sin. Amnon, Tamar, Absalom, Adonijah, the baby. I believe you when you say that you're sorry for your sin. I am too. I genuinely repent of my sins. But it doesn't change the fact that sin has consequences. For David and for me and for you. And if that's where the story ends, then it's pretty sad. But fortunately for David and for you and for me, that's not where the story ends. The team was getting ready to go to state without me. I had been grounded at my home staring at my father for a week. I spent most of my time outside sitting on a tire swing that he had built for us. And you have to understand something. My dad... When I wanted a tire swing, when I was a little boy and I wanted a tire swing, you know what a tire swing is, right? You take a tire, wrap a rope around it, tire swing. My father decided those were not safe. So he took a big old wide tire and he cut a hole in the tire so you could sit on the inside of the tread of the tire. And then he cut a line around it so you'd have something to hold on to. And so I sat in this tire swing outside in the yard, as far away from my father on the property as I could get and still be on the property, stewing to myself that he didn't even know how to put up a silly tire swing. (laughs) I remember my dad came out. He said, son, get in the car. So I got in the car, passenger side, because I wasn't driving anywhere at that point in time. And we drove to my coach's house. And we went inside, and my dad said, Coach, if it's all right with you, I'd like for my son to play. I'm sorry, what? My father, who I honestly, to this point in his life, I've never seen him change his mind on anything. I got my uniform back. I got to ride on the bus with the guys. I got to stay in the hotel. I got an at-bat at the state tournament. I struck out on three pitches, but I got an at-bat. Bathsheba had another baby. Called him Jedediah. You may know him better by his other name. Verse 24 of chapter 12. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him, what? Solomon. And the Lord loved him. I told you there were three lessons that I learned. Sin is always greater than our power to explain it. The consequences of sin are always greater than the sin itself. But if you're sitting here today in the rubble of your sin or the rubble of someone else's sin that has been inflicted upon you and you're sitting there wondering if there's any hope, you need to know the good news of the gospel is found in this third sentence. Are you ready? Here is the third sentence. God's grace is greater than any consequences. God's grace is greater than any consequences. We know what God's word says. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We memorize that. Many of you may have that memorized. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here's my question. Have you ever memorized verse 24? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace that comes from the redemption by Christ Jesus. If you had to pick one word in the Bible that was your favorite word, just one word, what would that word be? If you could choose a word in the Bible that really just resonates with you, means so much to you, what would that word be? Let's hear from some of you. Give me a word that you really love in the Bible. Grace. Give me that one. Holy. Keep going. Love. Freedom. Joy, peace. Somebody better say Jesus. I would say Jesus would be a really important one, wouldn't it? You know what my favorite word in the Bible is? You can write this down in case you forget. My favorite word in the Bible is but. It really is. But, B-U-T, but. And the reason why is because but indicates that you were headed in one direction until something catastrophic happened that changed your direction and moved you in a new way. Look at Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of life is eternal. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here's my question to you. Which of the three lessons do you need to hear today? Some of us need to hear that sin is always greater than our power to explain it. Because right now, we're knee-deep in sin and we're trying to explain it to anyone that will listen. And if that's you, don't feel bad because you need to understand. Many times in my life, that's me too. I'm there a lot. Some of us need to hear the second lesson about the consequences of sin, always being greater than the sin itself. When we're in the rubble of our sin or when we are put in the rubble by someone else's actions, when someone else hurts us and leaves us in the wake of their sin or maybe the wake of ours, when we live in the midst of the consequences, maybe that's you. You need to realize that The attack in your life might not be from Satan. How many of you, how many of you have ever had something bad happen to you? And you're just like, man, I can't can't believe Satan's attacking me like this. Well, I hate to break it to you, Sparky. It might not be Satan. It might be you. It might be God, because there are some times in my life and I'm like, God, why, why are you letting this happen to me? I'm letting this happen to you because you need to learn something, son. And I'm going to keep letting this happen to you until you figure it out. But for all of those, I pray that you hear about grace. That God's grace is greater than any consequences. Because there are people that are all around you in this community who are in the middle of their sin and they're trying to justify their sin or they're living in the middle of the consequences of their sin and they're wondering if there's any hope. They're wondering if anybody will give them any chance, any shot at redemption. And you guys have the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that he's not done with you yet. 
that you have the opportunity to give grace that can transcend even the worst of circumstances, that you can walk with people and share that grace, even in the midst of the struggles that they have. I tell you what, there's a scary verse in Hebrews 12, 15. Hebrews 12, 15 is one of the scary verses of Scripture. It says to me, it says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. My God dispenses grace to me freely. He lavishes grace on me. And you understand why, don't you? He gives me more grace than I can possibly use because he expects me to give it away. And I have a responsibility to everyone that I encounter to see to it that no one misses the grace of God in their life. Every person that I encounter, I have the responsibility to make sure that they know that that grace that transcends even the worst of circumstances can cover them. The good news in three statements. What lesson do you need to learn today? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now. We come to you as sinners. We come to you as people who... um, We have a real habit of messing this thing up. And Father, and sometimes we just, there's no real good answer for it. We may think we have a justification for it, but really we don't. So in the midst of the consequences of those sins, in the midst of the rubble that we ourselves have created or, or the rubble someone else has created for us, Father, may we remember that your grace is lavished on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. But you do not give us this grace to just hold on to it selfishly, to continue to pour it upon ourselves and never share it with anybody else. Father, forgive us for our self-righteousness that feels like sometimes we can do this on our own and we don't even need you anymore. We have enough to take care of things. May we be open to that grace in our lives. May we be open to that forgiveness, that mercy that continues to pour out. And so that mercy will triumph over judgment when we talk to someone else. When we share that grace with them. May we love from the overflow of what you have done for us. And even in the midst of the consequences of sin, you are powerful and victory is yours. And I pray today that we would hear that, that we would know that, we would live that, and we would share that good news. It's in your name, Father, that changed us forever that we pray. Amen. This morning, if you have a decision to make, maybe a decision about being in sin, 